So let's give a warm welcome now to James Merritt as he comes and brings us a message. Well, thank you very much. I, I know what I would be saying if I were sitting out there uh, like you are. And I looked at this lineup, and you know, I kind of feel like the seven sons of Sceva. You know, I feel like you're out there and you're saying, okay, Coy I know. And I have to tell you, I don't know how I got invited to this. I'm being serious. You know, MacArthur and Swindoll and James McDonald and Bob Coy and Greg Laurie. And I was telling, in fact, my wife, Teresa, I told her the other day, she didn't know I was coming out here. I forgot to tell her. I said, hey, I'm coming to California and going to be on this conference. And she said, really? And she said, well, who's on it? And I told her, and she said, why are you preaching? So... So I have to tell you, I do kind of feel like uh, Elizabeth Taylor's seventh husband. <laughs> They're on their way to the honeymoon, and she looked at him and said, Don't worry, I won't keep you long. <laughs> he looked at her and said, I'm just glad to be here. So I, I'm just really <laughs> glad to be here. Now, something has happened this morning that in all the years I've been preaching has never happened. And this is dead serious. I I worked out this morning, and we came in with a buddy of mine to have breakfast, and James McDonald's at the table. said, hey, Merrick, come over and sit down. And he said, what are you preaching on? And I said, I'm preaching out of 2 Timothy 4. (laughs) He said, I'm preaching out of 2 Timothy 4. Well, you have to know James. You know, he's a jokester, and I, I really think he's joking. I'm serious about this. We sat there 30 minutes, and he keeps telling me, you know, well, what are you going to say? And I said, I'm not buying it. You're not preaching on 2 Timothy 4. Well, finally, he says, listen, dude, I'm telling you, I am preaching on 2 Timothy 4. <laughs> and then in that uh, gracious Canadian way of his, he said, why don't you change your sermon? And in my deep south from Georgia, bow up your back way, I said, why don't you change yours? Well, Bob Coy mediated. And all seriousness, he said, you know what I believe? He said, I believe that God has something so emphatic he wants to say, you both ought to preach what God laid on your heart. So I do want you to turn back, if you haven't turned to 2 Timothy 4. The title of my message is, Can They Hear You Now? Preaching in the 21st Century. Right after Richard Nixon was elected President of the United States, he called Billy Graham to the, to the White House. Uh, and he will tell you, that, and would have told you then, that he felt like the, Dr. Graham was very instrumental in his being elected, and they were very good friends, and so he called him to the White House, and Dr. Graham went into the Oval Office, he sat down, and uh, he said, Billy, he said, I brought you to the White House to ask you one question. He said, yes, sir, what is it? He said, what job do you want? He said, sir. He said, what job do you want? He said, Billy, I will appoint you to any ambassadorship you want, you name it. And here's what Billy Graham said. Mr. President, I don't want anything. God called me to preach, and I'm never going to do anything but that. I truly believe that every preacher of God's Word ought to have that same passion. 
And that same commitment to preaching that Mr. Graham displayed. Now, let me give you some good news. If you're a preacher here, it doesn't matter to me whether you're highly educated or not that highly educated. It doesn't matter to me whether you have an extensive filing system and it's all on computer, you do it all on notes. It doesn't matter to me whether you pastor a rural church or an urban church or a big church or a little church. If, if you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this because I'll I, I tell you what, I know why Greg put this conference together. We want to be an encouragement. I don't know if you, if you can relate to this as a pastor or not. You ever notice how some people try to encourage you, but they just don't quite get there? <laughs> I had a lady come up to me t- about three weeks ago, and she said, You know, Pastor, you'll never know how much your sermons have meant to my husband since he lost his mind. And, uh, they, you know, they, 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 they try to get there. They just, they just can't quite make it. Well, I want to encourage you. And and if you don't believe anything else I say in the message or don't hear anything else, this is what I want you to hear. Every preacher in this room has the same ability to preach both powerfully and practically to any culture, any time, anywhere. You say, well, you're just trying to make me feel good. No, and I'll tell you why I know that's true. We all have the greatest subject to preach, the Son of God. We all have the greatest source to preach from. The Word of God. We all have the greatest strength to preach with the Spirit of God. And I'm here to tell you this morning, any preacher who is a man of God, who will take the Word of God and anointed by the Spirit of God, preach the truth of God, can preach anywhere, anytime, at any place with the favor of God on his life. I don't care who you are or where you are. I heard about a young preacher that just graduated from seminary, and and he was called to preach in a church in one of these big college towns, and almost all the college professors were members of the church. And so he began to think about that highly educated, very cultured congregation he got to preaching in, and he would be preaching in, and he he got very intimidated. And he called his dad, who happened to be a pastor, and he said, Dad, he said, I've got brain brain lock. I I just can't, I, I don't even know what to say. He said, what's your problem? He said, I'm having a hard time preparing my sermon. He said, why? He said, well, Dad... He said, if I talk about geology, I'll be staring at a Ph.D. in geology. If I talk about sociology, I'll be staring at a Ph.D. in sociology. If I talk about philosophy, I'll be staring at a Ph.D. in philosophy. He said, what do you think I ought to do? And that godly wise pastor said, son, why don't you just preach the Bible? They probably know very little about that. (laughs) Now, That advice is extremely similar to the counsel that Paul gave to his young protege, Timothy, 2,000 years ago. And basically, as we look at these first five verses in in really, really much greater detail than uh, James did. (laughs) I see you got to know, see McDonald's hearing this right now. You have to know that McDonald's, here's how, here's what McDonald's doing right now. McDonald does not cuss, but if you were to write a word on a piece of paper right now, he'd sign it, okay? I mean, he, you know, that's okay. That's all right. But basically, you can sum up what Paul said to Timothy in one sentence. He said, Timothy, I want to tell you what practical preaching is all about. It's real simple. Preach the Word and reach the world. Preach the Word and reach the world. Now, as a backdrop, let me go back to the, to the passage again, and I want to read verse 1. Listen to it. He said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, 
who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom. And I want to just reiterate something that my brother said. God's going to judge your ministry. Everyone in this room, you're going to stand before God. If you are a preacher of the gospel, you're a pastor, you're going to give an account of your ministry. God's going to judge what you did, how you did it, why you did it. He's going to judge your message. He's going to judge your method. He's going to judge your motives. He's going to judge what you said when you were behind this pulpit. He's going to judge how you said what you said behind this pulpit. He's going to judge why you said it behind this pulpit. And let me just say this just as an aside move on. This is a sacred place. And there is no place for, for, for profanity and crudity when you're standing up and preaching the Word of God. None. None. It's a holy place. You're preaching a holy book for a holy God. So I said all that to say this. Why was it that Paul said, just came out of the gate so strong and said, Timothy, I charge you. It's not that I'm suggesting to you or I'm advising you or I'm counseling you. He said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. I'll tell you what he was trying to tell Timothy up front. Timothy, it really doesn't matter what your peers think about your ministry. It really doesn't matter what the press thinks about your ministry. It really doesn't matter what other people think about your ministry. Timothy, the only thing that matters is what does God think about your ministry? You don't have to give an account to Washington or to Hollywood or to Wall Street or anyone else for your ministry. You have to give an account to God. So as we study this text before us, I really don't believe there is a more relevant passage on practical preaching. Because basically, here's what Paul did to Timothy. He did something I wouldn't do because I'm not Paul. I was not an apostle, but I can take his words and apply it to you. He said, Timothy, I'm going to tell you how to preach. I'm going to tell you how to preach in such a way that God will be honored, lives will be changed, and the Son of God will be lifted up. And he tells him three things in this passage all of us need to do. You can write these down. He said, number one, he said, Timothy, we must remember the charge to be faithful. We must remember the charge to be faithful. Now, what was it that he charged Timothy to do? His charge was three words. Preach the Word. He didn't charge Timothy to heal the sick. He didn't charge Timothy to raise the dead. He didn't charge Timothy to perform miracles. He said, preach the Word. And then he says, not only am I going to tell you what to preach, I'm going to tell you how to preach. Number one, preach confidently. Preach confidently. Preach the Word. Advice is very clear. He said, Timothy, don't preach book reviews. Don't preach economics. Don't preach philosophy. Don't preach sociology. Preach the Word. Preach the Scriptures. Preach the whole counsel of God. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood about, about to say, but please hear me clearly. I, I'm not a fool. I, I wasn't the last guy picked up on the truck. My, I know my, my college nickname was Gomer, but I, I got a little bit of an education. I want to meet the real needs of hurting people. Who doesn't? I want to scratch people where they itch. I want to soothe people where they hurt. But Paul did not advise Timothy to start with the needs of people. He advised him to start with the Word of God. Now, why do you think he did that? I, I, want, I want to submit something I want you to think about it. I submit to you that the gospel is not addressed primarily to felt needs. Now, think about this. 
You go back and read the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, they tell us that man's three greatest needs are these. Number one, realize he's a lost sinner. Number two, repent of his sin. And number three, receive by faith Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I submit to you, those are all unfelt needs. Because if they were felt needs, we'd have people lined up without saying anything to asking us, how can I be right with God? How can my sins be forgiven? Tell me how to repent. You know why I know those are all, those are all unfelt needs? Because only the Holy Spirit can convict a person he's lost. It is the goodness of God that leads a person to repentance. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If this book is true, the single greatest need of every person on this planet is to confess to a holy God that they are sinful and receive the salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ. Therefore, preaching that fails to confront the sinner and convict the sinner and correct the sinner and convert the sinner through the Word of God does not meet the greatest need of the human race. Now, there's a certain style, and there's a certain substance of preaching that may make people feel good. It may make them better leaders. It may make them more compassionate lovers. But it will never meet their deepest real needs. Let me tell you what I have learned in my, my relatively short and, and relatively insignificant ministry. This is what I've learned. I have learned that if you will simply preach God's Word, preach it verse by verse, just like my brother said, just take the truth that's found in the Bible itself you will not only meet every felt need that people have, you will uncover needs they don't even know they've got. You will. Because this book is the Word of God without us. But we are nothing without the Word of God. I don't care how big your church is. I don't care how many radio stations or TV stations you might be on. I don't care how many times your books sell. We are nothing apart from the Word of God. Why do you think the Bible's called a fire? Why do you think it's called a sword? Why do you think it's called a light? Because if this book is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, it is still a fire that can melt the coldest heart. It is still a sword that can cut the hardest soul. It is still a lamp that can enlighten the darkest mind. Preach the Word. My hero and my mentor was a man by the name of Dr. Adrian Rogers. Dr. Adrian Rogers, to this day, is still the greatest preacher in my mind I've ever heard in my entire life. I was very close to Dr. Rogers, and uh, matter of fact, uh, not too long before he died, we spoke for about an hour on the telephone, and I told Dr. Rogers, I said, you know what, Dr. Rogers, God has used you in my life in so many ways to help me be a better preacher, and, and, and really has helped me to keep my preaching in perspective. He said, what do you mean? I said, every time I get to thinking I'm a pretty good preacher, I'll just start listening to one of your sermons. I'm just reminded again, I'm, I mean, you're major league and I'm minor league, but, but I'll tell you something that Adrian said to me one time that I will never, ever forget. And it, and it just, I mean, the moment I heard it, it just like stuck like glue. He said, James, I would rather stand before God and have God say to me, Adrian, you preach the Bible too much, than to stand before God and have God say to me, Adrian, you preach the Bible too little. I may be guilty of one, I will not be guilty of the other. Preach the Word. Preach it confidently. Then he said, preach compellingly. Preach it compellingly. He says in verse 2, be ready. Now, in the original Greek language, that word was used of a soldier who would be ready to go in a battle at a moment's notice. And I think what Paul was talking about, he was saying, just like a soldier is up on his toes, just like he's waiting to hear the trumpet call to battle, 
Just like he senses the urgency and the fervency and the passion that ought to be there. I think what Paul was saying was, Timothy, if you're going to preach, preach with zeal. Preach with compassion. Preach with passion and preach with urgency. Jeremiah was right. He tried to quit. You know what he said? I found out like that, that, that preaching was like a fire in my bones. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I'm just going to be very honest with you. There are a lot of preachers that I listen to from time to time. I'll tell you, you either ought to put their, their sermons in the fire or put some fire in their sermons. Your people will never be more excited about your sermon than you are. Preach compellingly. And then he said, preach continuously. Be ready in season and out of season. As my brother said, when it's convenient, when it's not convenient. When it's popular, when it's not popular. When people like it, when they don't like it. Do you know why? Preacher, listen, it is not your job to make God's truth acceptable. It is your job to make God's truth available. That's all your job is to do. You're just the messenger boy. Now, I understand we're living in a postmodern world, and I'm all for com- committed to, you know, to adopting methodologies and, 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 and innovation and creativity that will help make our message relevant and applicable where people will hear. But I also agree with Dr. MacArthur who said this, Why should the postmodern world believe the gospel? When the church appears so unsure of its truth that it dressed up that gospel in the garments of modernity to heighten its interest, it is a self-defeating strategy. What the church needs is not more of these strategies, but more faith, more confidence that God's Word is sufficient for this time, more confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit to apply it, and more integrity in proclaiming it. Preach continuously. And then Paul said, preach convictingly. He says in verse 2, we are to reprove. Now hold on. That means we are to confront people with the problem of sin, and not just socially collective sin. It's cool to be green these days. Let's all be green. And I'm not wrong with that. I'm all for being environmentally friendly, and I'm all for taking care of God's creation. But it's not just social collective sin. It is personal, individual sin. Now, you're being told today, you're being bombarded with this message. You can't do that. You cannot do that. You'll never build a church if you do that. You cannot confront people with their sin if they come to church. One famous preacher in this state, won't call his name, put it this way. I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and counterproductive to the evangelistic enterprise than the unchristian, uncouth strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. There's a Greek word for that. Baloney. <laughs> and there's an old-fashioned word for that, heresy. Listen, what do you think the work of the Holy Spirit is? It is the work of the Holy Spirit to day in and day out convict people of their lost and sinful condition. I was reading about the old Methodist preacher, Peter Cartwright. He was a, a circuit-riding preacher back in the 19th century. And on one occasion, he was getting ready to preach to this very large congregation. Somebody approached the platform and whispered in his ear and said, you, you might want to know, Pastor, that President Andrew Jackson is in the congregation, so you better make sure about, you know, be careful about what you say. You don't want to say anything that might be offensive. 
When Peter Cartwright got up to speak, he began with these words. I'm quoting. I've been told that President Andrew Jackson is in this congregation, and I have been asked to guard my remarks. I just want to begin by saying that Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent of his sin. Now, you could hear grass growing outside when he said that. I don't think he got one amen in the crowd. But when that service was over, Andrew Jackson came up to him and said, Pastor, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip this world. Now, I wouldn't advocate if the president ever visits your service. Well, maybe. At the same time, if the major concern of your ministry is to win a popularity contest and to make sure that nobody ever gets angry with you and make sure you're not blacklisted by your local newspaper, if your goal in life is to be one of the 100 most admired people in America, you probably ought to sell shoes. I mean, you really should. I really do doubt your calling. You, you, you're probably like the young man I heard about that got up and preached his very first sermon. When he got through, he went back to the back, and the pastor, the old emeritus pastor of the church was sitting back there, and he said, well, he said, uh, what do you think about my calling? He said, son, I think it was local, not long distance. Um, <laughs> your goal in life should be to preach the whole counsel of God in such a way that the Word of God is magnified, the Son of God is glorified, the Church of God is edified, and the Spirit of God is satisfied. That's all you need to do. Preach the Word. And then he said, preach courageously. He goes on to say in verse 2, we're to rebuke. rebuke. Not just reprove, reprove, but rebuke. You say, hey, hey, James, wait a minute. What's the difference between rebuke and reprove? When you reprove, you confront people with the fact of their sin. But when you rebuke, you confront people with the fault of their sin. That is, you not only tell people, you are a sinner, I am a sinner, we are all sinners, but you tell people, sin is an affront to a holy God that calls down His wrath upon us, and we must repent if we're going to have a relationship with that God. Now, if you do that, let me make a guarantee to you. You will offend people. You will upset people. You will be called hara, uh, 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 na harsh, narrow-minded, mean-spirited, intolerant. Uh, because let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. Telling the truth is not easy. I'm not going to pretend up here, you know, that, that's, it's all good and all wonderful. And I, I was reading about a missionary who'd been working in a foreign country. And in this particular village where he worked, polygamy was an accepted custom. And so after he led one of the men in the village to the Lord, he began to disciple this, this man. He found out this man had five wives. And, and so he finally got to the point where he could confront him, and, and, and he called him in, and he said, Look, he said, you know you've committed your life to God. He said, I have. And he said, Jesus Christ is your Lord, and he said, He is. He said, Well, you need to understand that you're living in violation of one of God's laws. And, and the man said, well, well, what? He said, Well, God says you can only have one wife. You can no longer be married to, four, to these five women You've got to go and tell four of these women they've got to move out. He thought about it for a moment and said, I've got a better idea. I'll wait here. You go tell them. <laughs> now, somebody's got to step up to the plate and preach the truth of the Word of God. 
and not worry about how people are going to respond or how people are going to accept it. But then look how he wraps it up. Paul is so brilliant. He says, preach constructively. He says, exhort. Now, the word means build up, encourage. I'll tell you what I think he was saying to Timothy. I think he was saying, Timothy, don't get the idea that preaching ought to be primarily negative. Preaching ought to be primarily positive. Let me tell you something, folks. The overwhelming message of this book is positive. God loves us so much. He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would never perish but have eternal life. That is so positive. It is so wonderful news. Yes, we're to tell people they, what they cannot be without Jesus, absolutely, but we need to emphasize what they can be with Jesus. It's, you know, I've learned this. It is possible to say the right thing in the wrong way and it wind up being the wrong thing, even though it's true. Uh, there, there was a, a fellow driving in the country and, and, and he came up upon a priest and a rabbi and they were standing on the shoulder of the road and they were fishing in a lake. Next to them was this sign that they had painted. It said, turn around, the end is near. When this guy was very unreligious and very antagonistic toward the church, he rode down the window and said, you bunch of religious nuts, why don't you mind your own business? A few seconds later, they heard the screech of tires and a splash into the lake. The rabbi turned to the priest and said, I told you we should have just written bridge out. Preach compassionately, preach constructively, but then preach compassionately. Look what he says in verse 2 again. With great patience and instruction. Now, why did he say that? Timothy, Rome wasn't built in a day. Roses don't blossom in a moment. Fruit isn't born in a minute. You just keep preaching the Word. You may not see God-sized results immediately. That's okay. Timothy, there's one thing I'll guarantee you. I won't guarantee you that you'll be one of those men that will ever pastor a super, super, duper, mega church. But I will tell you this. You just keep preaching God's Word because God made a promise that's never failed yet. His Word will not return void. Just preach compassionately. Now, why did he set all of that up? Why did he hammer that home? Because of the second thing we need to learn. And that is, we must realize the choice to be doubtful. We must realize the choice to be doubtful. That's why we have to understand the charge to be faithful, because here's what Paul's now going to tell Timothy. He said, Timothy, you've got a choice. You can preach God's Word or preach something else. You can preach what God wants people to hear or what you want people to hear. Here's what you cannot choose, Timothy. You cannot choose how the people are going to receive it. You don't have a choice in that. So he says in verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now that Hebrew, the, the Greek word for sound is very interesting. It is the word that gives us the English word hygiene. It, it literally means healthy or health giving. Here's what Paul was saying. You're talking about being relevant in the 21st century. Paul said, Timothy, the day's going to come when people are going to walk into a church, and here's what they're going to say to the preacher. I do not want you to tell me how to be spiritually healthy. I do not want you to tell me how to be consistently 
holy. I want you to tell me how to be personally happy. That's what I want to hear. That's what I want to know. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this verse in the message. Listen to this. He said, you're going to find that there will be times when people have no stomach for solid teaching, but they'll fill up on spiritual junk food. Catchy opinions that tickle their fancy. They'll turn their backs on truth and chase mirages. I am convinced there's a lot of churches out there that all ought to be named in and out. Because that's what they're giving. Paul said there's going to come a day when people will not want to hear sound doctrine. They want their preaching perfumed. They want it chloroformed. They want it covered with velvet. They want to hear about the love of God. They don't want to hear about the holiness of God. They want to hear about the mercy of God. They do not want to hear about the judgment of God. They want to hear about heaven. They do not want to hear about hell. And Paul goes on to say in verse 3, But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. So many people today, they've got the itchy ear syndrome. Let me tell you something. The average person that walks into church today, I'm just talking about the average person, even in your church and mine, they're a lot more concerned about the length of your sermon than they are the depth of your sermon. They're a lot more concerned about the clock than they are about truth. And they're more concerned that you get up and tell them what God can do for them rather than what they can do for God. And quite frankly, they'll look for preachers and teachers who will tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. It's like a lady I read about who was taking care of a little six-year-old girl. And, 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 and her mother was away, and this was the first time she'd ever kept that little girl, and she wanted to make a good impression, and she wanted that girl to give a good report. So she got up early the next morning, and that, that first morning that the girl spent the night with her, and she, she prepared this big breakfast of ham and eggs. And, 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 and so she sat her down, and the girl looked at it and just folded her arms. She said, well, what's wrong? She said, well, my mother always fixes biscuits. Well, the lady didn't have anything to fix biscuits with. So she asked her older son, she said, would you watch this little girl while I'm gone? And So she takes off to the grocery store and gets the flour, the milk, the Crisco. She comes back, mixes all that up, slays over this hot stove, puts out the best homemade biscuits she could possibly fix. When she put them down in front of that little girl, the little girl said, no, thank you. She said, I thought you told me your mother fixes biscuits every morning. She says, she does. I don't eat them. What's the point? You get in that study, and you labor over that hot stove of preparation. You keep getting in there, and you keep turning out the bread of heaven. You just keep getting in there, and you stand up before your people on Sunday, and you keep preaching the best that you possibly can in the power of the Holy Spirit. You pour out your blood, your sweat, your tears, your prayer, your study, and remember, it is not what whether or not people will receive what you preach is not the problem. It is what you're going to say that is your major concern. Finally, Paul goes on to, goes on to say, verse 4, and, they, and this is the danger, and they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they'll turn aside to miss. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you why Greg's putting this conference on, and I'm, I am really grateful to be a part of it. Let me, tell you why this is, let me tell you why we're dealing here with eternally life and death issues. This is why it's so important that we preach the Word for this reason. And you're seeing it happen all over our country. If a solid meat of biblical truth is not fed to your people on Saturday and Sunday, they will drink the curdled milk of political correctness, New Age theology, and satanic deception.
If we don't teach our people to believe the right things, they will believe anything. And then Paul closes with this last thought. We must receive the challenge to be watchful. Now, as Paul wraps all this up, I kind of get the feeling that Paul knew the sun was setting on his life, and I kind of get the feeling that Paul, even though Timothy didn't realize it, I think Paul was saying, Timothy, this is really two pastor's conferences you've attended, your first one and your last one. Because the next time I see you, it will be in heaven. And Timothy, knowing how tough the ministry is and how hard it is. And brothers, if you haven't found the ministry to be hard, you haven't been in ministry. I pastor a sweet church, loves me a great church. But there's not enough gold in Fort Knox to pay me what I have to do as a pastor week in and week out. It's just not. So I think he was saying in the spirit of what James said a while ago about finishing strong. He says, Timothy, let me just give you three or four pieces of advice as we wrap this up. He said, as you go about your ministry, Timothy, be alert. He says in verse 5, be sober in all things. The word sober there literally means watchful. And I think what Paul was saying was, Timothy, be alert to the culture. Be watchful of where people are going and, 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 and trends. Now, don't let what they're doing dominate what you're saying. But do make sure that what you're saying applies and is relevant to where they're going. Be alert. Be watchful. As, as I preach, there are always two things. When I prepare a message, I always imagine that people in my audience are asking two questions. First question I think, and I think people are asking this. First question they're asking when you get up to preach, no matter what you, you say, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Here's the two questions they're asking. So what? Okay. I've heard that before. Nothing new. Jesus died for my sin. Okay. So what? And then the second question they're asking is, now what? All right. What am I supposed to do about it? What, I mean, what, so what do I do? What is it you are asking me to do? How do I apply that truth in a practical way so that my life is radically different? Paul said, okay, be alert, Timothy, be alert. Number two, be adaptable. He says, endure hardship. Now, you ought to know why he said that. See, you can leave here and you can, you can leave here with a renewed passion and a renewed commitment and a renewed surrender. I'm going to preach the Word of God. I'm going to preach truth. I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. I'm going to preach practically. I'm going to preach powerfully. I'm going to preach systematically the truth of God's Word. All right, then get ready. You will endure hardship. You won't be always popular. You won't always get complimentary letters. Oh, and by the way, just as a practical aside, how many of you have ever gotten... An anonymous letter in the mail. Hold your hand. Have you ever got an anonymous letter? All right, listen. Have the philosophy of Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra said, I never answer anonymous mail. <laughs> in all seriousness, don't read anonymous mail. I, I haven't read an anonymous letter in over 20 years. You know why? If they don't have the integrity to sign it, you don't have the time to read it. Clyde L. Moody got an anonymous letter in the mail one time. All it had across it was the one word, fool. That's all it had. 
He got up in the pulpit the next Sunday and said, I got the weirdest letter. Somebody signed their name and forgot to write the letter. Endure hardship. There was an old preacher many years ago named Dr. Vance Havner. He used to say this. If you're going to preach God's Word, you're going to have to have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the hide of a rhinoceros. Can I tell you the truth about ministry? And every one of these men you'll hear will tell you the same thing I'm going to tell you. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. Preacher, if your ministry is going to count, it's going to cost. If it doesn't cost, it doesn't count. Jesus said, you want to follow me? Take up your cross. You want to build for me? Count the cost. Be adaptable. Thirdly, be aggressive. He says in verse 5, do the work of an evangelist. That's one of the reasons why my love and my respect and my admiration for, for Pastor Greg is, out the, is just off the charts. Can I tell you what Greg Laurie is? He is a pastor who does the work of an evangelist. That's exactly what he's doing. And, and every one of you in here, you're called to do it. And by the way, can I just tell you this just as an aside? More than anything else in your ministry, more than studying for a sermon, more than praying, more than anything else, if the devil can keep you from doing one thing, he'll keep you from doing the work of an evangelist. Don't let him. Stay aggressive. You can't expect your people to share Jesus if you're not sharing Jesus. You cannot expect your people to share the gospel if you're not sharing the gospel. Do the work. Of an evangelist. And then finally, he said, Timothy, be accountable. Fulfill your ministry. Now, I want to go back and tie something up in those last two things because I, and, and the Lord laid this on my heart. I didn't got, this, this is one thing I didn't get from anybody else. <laughs> I think there's a reason why he put those last two things together. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now, I'm going to make a statement. And if this makes some of you mad, you come up and apologize to me and I'll forgive you. <laughs> I do not believe there ought to be any venue where lost people might be present. Any venue. Where a preacher who stands up and preaches the Word of God should not somehow, some way, some place, at some time, present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't believe we ought to preach on the gospel every time we stand up to preach, but I believe the gospel ought to be somewhere in every message that we preach. I'll tell you why. We're through. One of the men I thank God for that I'd never heard of until a few years ago is a man by the name of Robert Eaglin. I dare say maybe there's two or three in here that know that name. I'd say 99% of you do not know who Robert England is. He was a deacon in his church in Colchester, England. He woke up one Sunday morning in January, and the ground was blanketed with a foot of snow, and he started just to turn over and go back to bed because he thought, well, nobody will go to church in all this bad weather. And then he thought, man, I'm a deacon. And if anybody ought to get up and go to church, the deacons ought to go to church. So he put on his boots, his hat, his coat. He walked six miles to that Methodist church where he attended. Well, when he got there, he discovered he was the only deacon that showed up. Matter of fact, even the pastor didn't get out of bed. Stayed home. When he walked into that little church, there were 13 people there, 12 members, and a little 13-year-old boy this man had never laid eyes on in his life. Didn't know where he was, where he came from. 
Somebody suggested that they ought to go home since they didn't have a preacher. But Robert England said, wait a minute. All of us have walked a long way through the snow to get here. We ought to have a service and we ought to have a sermon. Well, somebody said, well, you're the deacon. You're the only one who has any spiritual authority here, so you ought to be the one to preach. So Robert England said, all right, I'll preach. Now, you know, he was like the guy that got up and preached his first sermon and decided to go without any notes. And he got up and he said, I want you to know, before I walked into this platform, only God and I knew what I was going to say. And now, only God knows. Now, <laughs> you, you would never call what this guy really did preaching because according to his own account, all he did was take a text, Isaiah 45, 22, and basically read it over and over for ten minutes. Here's all it says. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. That's all he said. And so he would say, look. All of you look. All of you look there. That's all he could say. If you look there, you'll be saved. And then he just simply said, and to be saved simply means to understand that Jesus loves you so much, He died for you. He's alive right now, and He wants to save you. Later on, he said, I know now it was a leadership of the Holy Spirit, but he said, for some reason, my attention was drawn to that 13-year-old boy. And all I said to that 13-year-old boy was, Son, if you'll look to Jesus, you'll be saved. Years later, in his autobiography, this is what that boy wrote. I did look, and then and there the cloud on my heart lifted, the darkness rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun, S-O-N, and I was born again. That little boy was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And you know, to this day, I thank God that Robert England did not get up and preach a message on how to be up when the weather is down. <laughs> thank God he didn't get up and preach a sermon entitled, How to Glow in the Snow. Thank God he didn't preach a sermon entitled, Snow White and the Seven Disciples. Thank God that a man of God took the Word of God by the Spirit of God, preached the truth of God about the Son of God and made a practical, eternal difference in the life of a little boy who went on to become the greatest preacher than the Apostle Paul. Practical preaching at its best. Preach the Word. God bless you.